Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. Our scripture reading today is from the last book of the Bible, almost the last page of the Bible, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Please now hear the word of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a paragraph in the Bible like this. Thank you for a hope like this. I pray that as we, as we explain and look at and dwell upon the riches of this paragraph, Father, that you would awaken us and draw us near, that you would make us thirsty for a better future, that we would not be settling, but that we would be persevering. Father, this word is timeless and true, and it is here to satisfy your people. So, Father, I pray, give your people ears to hear. Let us lean in. Let us savor. Let us conform ourselves to the world that is to come and forsake our conformity to the world 
that is passing away. Father, give me clarity and speech and conviction and most importantly, the precision of your word that this sermon may be you speaking to your people, not me. Pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. So, preachers are never supposed to admit they have a favorite part of Scripture. But come on. How could this not be your favorite part of Scripture? I mean, how beautiful is this paragraph? It's the, it's the paragraph of the Bible that I think our, our hearts ache for, whether we, we have come to faith in Christ or whether we are still tossed to and fro in the world. We want a world that is like this. And the Bible tells us that world is coming and it is delivered to all of Christ's people. We are in a series for Advent called All Things New, and it is taken from this particular paragraph of Scripture. And it's a, a way to remind us at Christmas, uh, which typically we, we celebrate Advent, and we are celebrating Advent here, but we remind ourselves that Advent means coming. And so coming does not just describe what Jesus has done in the past. It also describes our hope and anticipation that he comes again. And so at Christmas, the focus is that we are looking forward because we are able to look back at what Christ has already done. Christmas is a... Um, a very unique season. Everybody seems to be caught up in it, uh, churchgoer or not. It's a, it's a part packed with traditions and memories and expectations and excesses, which we all give permission to because there is a time for those things. Christmas kind of brings everything about our life under the microscope. We kind of feel every feeling that we had over that year. We, we, we find ourselves uh, comparing and measuring and, and evaluating and taking stock in where we're going and, and what we are doing. At, at Christmas, there is, there is joy and happiness and fun. But there's also sadness. We, we go through Christmas and, and we recognize that some are sick. Some relationships are broken. Some dearly beloved ones have passed. And so there's emptiness as well as fullness. Christmas is what I would wager to say a, a microcosm of the Christian life. At Christmas, we celebrate what is already in our lives, the coming of Christ, the gospel, the truth that the one born in a manger has come and taken away our sins. But all of that sadness, all of that grief, all of that longing and wanting also reminds us at Christmas that we live in the not yet. There is so much 
yet to come, so much that we continue to look forward to, so much that we, we want. And so Christmas, as a, it is a call to look back and remember it is also a call to long for the coming of the kingdom. And that is why we have put the emphasis this year on the coming because we know he has come in the past at, at Christmas. We know he is coming again. And so we are able to look at Christmas always with hope. Last week, we looked at Revelation chapter 20. And we saw that because of this truth that the one who has come is coming again, that when we come to Christmas, we know that Christmas proclaims that the snake crusher, the one who crushes Satan and the kingdom of evil, has come. And so we can look forward to this future where evil is completely thrown out. This week, we get to look at the fact that Christmas proclaims that the one who makes all things new has come. When we started this year, we went through Genesis uh, 1 through 3, and we looked at that as the series of the reason why, and we saw that God had created a, a, a beautiful world, and, and we saw that the reason why for everything good and bad can be found in those first three chapters of Genesis. The reason why we see good is because God created the world good, but the reason that we see evil and heartbreak and, and, uh, and anguish and disease And futility is because the world has fallen from man's sin. When we looked at Genesis chapter 3, we we called that uh, text of the fall the upside down, describing the, the fact that because of sin entering the world through Adam and Eve's transgression and us all following a long suit, the world is is upside down. What we live in is skewed, it's, it's twisted. We live in a world marked by death and separation and sadness and tears of futility, of brokenness, of separation from God. You know what is so beautiful about the Bible? Is that the Bible has an ending that answers the great problem of this world. Genesis 1 through 3 is perfectly matched by Revelation 20 to 22. In this paragraph, we see that everything that has been turned upside down by sin has been put right side up by Christ, who makes all things new. At Advent, the question that that I want these concluding chapters of the Bible to, to bring to you is, where is your hope? Where is your comfort? Where is your peace? Because we know that the one who comes is coming again, the scriptures make it clear. Find these things in Christ who has come. Today, we are told that the thirsty 
will receive this vision without payment. This passage, I pray, makes you thirsty for the day of Christ's return. What will the new heavens and the new earth be like? Our passage is going to give us five glorious glimpses of the new heavens and the new earth. These glimpses have been given to the church to set our sight, to anchor our soul. This text wants to make you thirsty for all things new. Are you thirsty? Let us look in turn at each of these glorious glimpses of the new heavens and the new earth. And if you uh, are, uh, are a child, we have a, a handout that you can follow along. This is the last week for uh, this term of sermon challenge. So I hope everybody participates that is doing that. And then also we do have a sermon outline at the back table if you would like to take notes and follow along. Let us now look at this first glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth. That first glimpse is this. Everything will be completely new. Everything will be completely new. We are looking in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. John is being shown the new heaven and the new earth, and the first attribute, the controlling attribute of this chapter is that it is new. It is a new creation, a creation whose newness is never lost. The Apostle Peter in chapter 1, verse 4 of his letter, writes of our inheritance. He says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That is what John is describing when he says that there is a new heavens and a new earth. It is one that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. By unfading, it means that it will be just as splendid, just as glorious, just as shining day one million as it was day one. The fresh car smell never leaves the new heavens and the new earth. It is beautiful. It is perpetually new. It doesn't wear out. It doesn't corrupt. It doesn't run down. Everything about it is pristine, ageless, and forever. Now, when we look at, at uh, this chapter of the new heavens and the new earth, the question that, that does come up is you try to uh, piece together different descriptions of the new heavens and the new earth is, are the new heavens brand spanking new or are they the current heavens and the earth made new, made uh, clean and purified and, and, and uh, uh, brought back to its former splendor? 
some passages of Scripture seem to suggest that there is a, a continuity between the, the uh, present earth and heavens and the new heavens and the new earth. You can look at the book of Hebrews that, that talks about the, the transition from one to the other being a, a dramatic shaking where everything that seems to be not fit for the, the eternal state is shaken out and what is permanent and what is good is, is left. And then there are other visions of the new heavens and the earth which seem to stress a, a, an, a radical discontinuity, like in Second Peter, which describes the present heavens and earth being consumed by fire, as, as in an idea that it's, it's disintegrated entirely and what we, we have is a completely new creation. I, I believe that these descriptions... Uh, are not in contradiction. They are simply uh, grasping at something that is, that is uh, hard to describe. Uh, I, I believe that, that probably the, the, the image that, that ties these together, an image that helps us know the, the way the new heavens and the new earth will be, is, is the message of resurrection. We see in resurrection that, that there is a new, radically different, imperishable, uncorruptible, undefilable life that is continuous, that has some connection to the previous body, but, but not in any manner that is, that is weak or defiled or, or unglorious. When Paul tries to describe the resurrection in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he, he, he comes up with uh, one metaphor and I'm, I assume it's probably inadequate, but it's at least one way of, of grasping this. He, he describes the resurrection body to our present body to be something similar to an acorn to a mighty oak. By inspection, an acorn and a mighty oak have vast differences. There, there is great discontinuity between a, a mighty oak and an acorn. And yet, between the two, we recognize that there is a connection and so, what does this mean? I, I, I believe it means that when we talk about the new heavens and the earth, we are, we are going to be talking about a, a heavens and an earth that, that we will recognize, that will have a, 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 a connection, because we will have a connection to the previous heavens and earth. But that connection will also be overwhelmed by an, a heavens and earth that are so wholly improved, so wholly pristine, so wholly magnificent that it is completely new by all our abilities to describe it. As, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians, no eye has imagined what lies ahead. And so the creation that we are headed into is so full of glory and newness that we call it completely new. And the, and the attribute that is, is specified next to newness is this, this uh, phrase, the sea was no more. What? What is wrong with the sea? Again, the question is, is always uh, raised as we look at the book of Revelation. Uh, it, as we look at this language, is it, is it uh, symbol or is it, is it completely uh, uh, literal? And I, I think in this situation, we're looking at something that is uh, describing a, a symbolic reality. The sea for a uh, uh, first century and earlier Israelite had connotations with a source of chaos, a source of evil. As Isaiah 57 verse 20 
said, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. I, I don't necessarily know that we're talking about the physicality of water and sea in the, in the new heavens and the new earth as much as we're talking about its, its symbolic connotation to spiritual evil and corruption, in which case that is not there. What we are told then about, about the, the new heavens and the new earth is that there is no vestige of evil or sin in this new creation. Second, there is no threat of evil or sin ever coming in to this new creation. In which case, it is, it is certainly better than the first heavens and the first earth, which did have the invasion of sin. It is better than the new creation that Noah inherited, where the floods removed all of the sin and iniquity of the world and bathed everything so that it was new again. But we remember looking at the story of Noah, that sin made it through into that creation. Because sin was still in Noah. But that's not true here. In the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no sin, no evil, no possibility, no danger or threat of it. It will be new and incorruptible. Does that make you thirsty? The second glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth is that everyone will shine with the beauty of holiness. Everyone will shine with the beauty of holiness. Look at verse 2 with me. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Heaven and earth are finally brought together. They're no longer kept separate. They have been kept separate since the creation, but now we see that they have been brought into oneness the, 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 the thing that we pray in the Lord's Prayer that it would be on uh, uh, earth as it is in heaven is brought finally here. That all that we hope for in heaven will be true on earth. It will be on earth as it is in heaven. And how heaven comes to earth. We see this descending holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending from heaven, coming down from God to become the new earth. Coming down from God. God does it. Here at the very end is a stress once again on the fact that all things new is the work of God alone. Contrast this vision with the story of Babel. The story of Babel was all about men trying to reach heaven, trying to build their way to heaven, trying to accomplish the taking of heaven by their own works. And it came to judgment. 
not because God did not want to share heaven, not because God did not have a plan for man to be part of heaven, but because man is not able to accomplish heaven. The only way that heaven can come is when God brings it down. There is no way up, but God comes down. Jesus is the one that brings the two together. It is not the Tower of Babel that allows uh, the, the crossing from earth to heaven. It is the Son, Jesus, who declared these words in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 51. He said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What connects heaven and earth is the Son whom God gave, who came down. Notice the nature of this city. It is a holy city. By being called holy, it means that it's been set apart to God. It is both a place, a city, and a people that are pure, devoted, unblemished. And it's a city. There's going to be a lot of people there. People who are marked by holiness, marked by devotion to God, centered in the gospel. There will be harmonious relationships in heaven because they will all be conformed to holiness. This will be a city that is a family. And it will be beautiful. The promise of the gospel is, is given to us in a, a particularly arresting form in the book of Ephesians chapter 5. We're told, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That is what Christ came to do, to purchase a people stained and corrupted and made filthy by sin and by his own blood to wash and sanctify and smooth and make beautiful. And here in the vision of heaven, we see the fulfillment of that promise because how does the holy city appear? It appears as a bride prepared for her husband. You see, we will be that bride. All that has been defiled, all that has been impure about us will be removed. We will be the bride. We will stand beautiful before the Lord. 
I mean, this image is so arresting to me because I know this image. I've been a groom. And I don't think there is a sight that rivals for any man the moment where the one he loves and cherishes comes through the doors adorned as beautifully as they can be. They are, they are precious and they have made themselves gorgeous. And the groom's heart throbs and, and explodes in exhilaration. And the, the face just beams with delight. My beautiful bride. Can you imagine this? The happiest face that you have seen on the happiest groom will pale in comparison to the happiness on the face of Christ when you, his bride, are presented to him. He will see you with joy inexpressible. Christ, who will have the prince of his sacrifice on his hands and feet, will rejoice at his church, who has been brought to him as the perfect gift of the Father. These words in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17 will tell us the emotional joy of God. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The church is the joy of Christ in heaven. Amazing. And you will be that bride. Does that make you thirsty? Third, everyone will enjoy the infinite fullness and pleasure of God. Look again now at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, with, with, with. Everyone will enjoy the infinite fullness and pleasure of God. We went through Genesis 4 through 11, and the framing image of Genesis 4 through 11 is the picture of this chasm that has shows us the consequences of sin, has made us far from God and away from God. Here in this beautiful glimpse of heaven, that chasm is erased completely and forever. The dwelling place of God is with man. That is part of the newness. It will never change. The dwelling place of God is with man. 
as we learn from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the answer to this question, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Here we see the, the, the hope and chief end of man brought into fullness. It is a united and an undiluted presence of God that we will be able to enjoy forever. As Paul describes it in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Beloved, you have enjoyed the gifts of God, the gifts of life and, and, and marriage and, and, and friendships and, and food and being provided for. But this is the amazing thing of heaven. You receive the giver who is infinitely greater than any of his gifts. The thing that makes you happiest and most delighted in this world is a pale comparison. I appreciate C.S. Lewis's illustration of, of trying to describe heaven and all of its pleasures being in, in the midst of God. He, he likens it to trying to describe marital bliss to a, a four- or five-year-old. You, you just can't hardly explain to a four- or five-year-old how the, 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 the greatest bliss they will ever experience will come through, through their marriage bed. They will only be able to imagine that it must mean they're going to be eating a lot of chocolates when they're grown up. Beloved, heavenly bliss is so far greater that part of the resurrection is to make you with a greater capacity to enjoy joy and even with that you will need eternity to enjoy all the joy of God eternity some, some besmirch it as who could possibly want to be in a place like this forever? I mean, eternity is so long, I'd be bored. Eternity is a breathless experience of awe and delight with his infinite greatness. You could not be bored. Are you thirsty? Fourth, everyone, will be perfectly whole and eternally comforted. Look again at verses 4 to 6. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It is done. 
all of the effects of sin are removed forever. I think verse 4 is, 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 is always the most poignant as I read this, as you read this, because we know sadness. We know injustice. We know conflict and disease and pain and suffering, futility and separation and death. We know these. They devastate us. And we are told in this picture that these things and and many others like it are not just removed. They are remedied. He will wipe away every tear. God himself will be face to face with you. And all the suffering and misery that you have been through, he will wipe away every tear. It will be tender. It will be understanding. He will know every one of those tears. It will be peace-giving. You will for the final time say, He loves me. He has quieted me. These don't hurt anymore. And it will be final. The tears that God wipes away will never come back. This is Romans 8.28, brought to its fullness. And we know that for those who love God, all things will work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, he will work all things together for good. Does this mean that everything that that we have gone through will, will have an answer? Well, that depends. If what you think about as an answer is a justifying reason and an explanation for why did this happen? I'm not so sure. And the reason for that is that evil is senseless inherently. There is, there is no answer to why does this madman go through and, and shoot with a gun all of these people. I don't know that, that anything is going to ever answer why did that happen. It is a senseless evil, and senselessness by definition cannot be explained. However, will everything have an answer? It will in the sense that everything will be seen as having been worth it for what God brings us into. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
Paul is, is telling us, you, you are going through affliction, you are going through misery, you are going through trials, but hold fast, persevere, because on the other side of this scale is an eternal weight of glory that is so immense, it will jettison the biggest problem, the biggest grief of your life, like a catapult. So it's gone. Because the eternal weight of glory so completely anchors you and makes you whole that you can't keep track of that. It is, it is like the picture of, of, a, of a mother in labor going through the worst pain, the, the, the greatest agony. When the scriptures want to talk about pain to the nth degree, they speak of the woman in labor. And it's awful. And what could possibly make all of that worth it? The baby. Happens, I've seen it in my own life three times. Three times, meaning we we signed up again. (laughs) The baby brings so much joy and happiness and delight to the mother who has gone through labor that it immediately becomes worth it. Not necessarily that it's all been explained, but it's all become so worth it because I have this baby and I now know joy that has no ceiling. That is what we look forward to, a perfectly whole and eternally comforted existence. Everything in heaven that we have had to go through on this earth will have become worth it. It will fade away. It will be replaced with joy. Are you thirsty? Because we got one more. Fifth, Christians will be home. Christians will be home What does home mean? Home means you belong. It's where you're supposed to be. It's where everything fits, where you're comfortable and secure. And if you are a Christian, you do not feel home very much. This is a hard place because the present world is not our home. The more you are committed to living in and living out the good news of Jesus, the more you are at disharmony with the values of this world. And it is a constant battle. Peter tells us that we are exiles, we are sojourners, we are like the, the, the immigrants that are, that, are, that are constantly abused. It is hard. What this paragraph tells us is that heaven is the Christian's home. It reminds me of a story of of some lifelong missionaries who come back on a a boat in the early 20th century, and they happen to be on the same boat as Teddy Roosevelt, the president of the United States, was on. They are coming back from a lifetime on the missions field. And they're there with, with Teddy Roosevelt. They come into port at New York, and there's this huge parade. There's this huge fanfare. There's trumpets. There's all sorts of people just delighted. Teddy Roosevelt's here, the president. And these two missionaries grab their suitcase, and they get off, and there's not a single person to welcome them home from the mission field. And the man is definitely 
heartbroken and distraught that he has served his entire life for the Lord and there's not a single person to welcome him home. And he goes into his prayer closet and he argues with God, why was there no one there? And the man came back to supper with his wife, settled and calmed. And the wife said, what's changed? And he said, the Lord answered my prayer. He said to me, Beloved, you're not home yet. You see, that place of home lies before us. Set your sights on where you will belong forever. Set your sights on heaven. Now, this passage ends with a warning. Verse 8, let me read it again. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You see, heaven, the new heavens and the new earth are only home for the Christian For those who have made this world their home, who have chosen not to place their faith in the gospel, who have chosen that the cost is too high, that they have have conformed to the world rather than walk with the Lord, who have taken on the world's ethics and ways, those who have proven that their faith is insincere by, by compromising, they are not going to this home. This home is for those who have come to Christ and walk with Christ. So as we've looked at these five glorious glimpses of the new heavens and the new earth where everything will be completely new, everyone will shine with the beauty of holiness, everyone will enjoy the infinite fullness and pleasure of God, everyone will be perfectly whole and eternally comforted, and Christians will be home. The best news I can give you to conclude this is given to us in verse 6. Everything that I have said to you is declared with the words of God. It is done. Everything that I have told you, there is no doubt. It is your future. It is true. Live in this reality. How can we know? How, How can you know it is done? Beloved, Because the one who makes all things new has come. Beloved, the one who will say it is done has already spoken. It is finished. The son of God was born to be the man of sorrows and pay for our sins so that we might be his people of joy. It is offered freely to all who are thirsty. Are you thirsty? Jesus says these words to you. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living 
water. Have you come to the Lord Jesus? Have you said, I am thirsty? Cleanse me of my sins. Be the Lord of my life. I want to be your bride. Make me new as you make all things new. And this will be your home. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.